uh, go for launch. Five. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Four. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. This whole thing is insane. Three. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Where's the kaboom? Two. There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. One. This could be the beginning of the end for the human race. For what men first thought were meteors or the often ridiculed flying saucers are in reality the flaming vanguard of the invasion from Mars. Looks like they're going to come out of that gully pretty soon. We'll have to rush our defenses to be ready when they do. Guys need plenty of reinforcements. We'll get them. Lieutenant, look! They slash across country like scythes. Wiping out everything that's trying to get away from them. That explains why communication is cut the moment their machines begin moving. Montreal's blacked out. Nothing more has come through. Same thing that happened on the Pacific Coast. Anything from them yet? No, Mr. Secretary. We've had nothing from San Francisco for over five hours. The nations of the world mobilize their armed might, rushing to defend the Earth against the unknown weapon of the super race from the Red Planet. Is there nothing that can stop the Martian death machines? Tanks, bombs, they're like toys against them. We know now that we can't beat their machines. We've got to beat them. All over the world, human beings cower before the onslaught of these unearthly enemies, whom no one has ever seen. Panic that sweeps around the globe as the great masses of mankind flee blindly in a headlong stampede of hysteria. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, intellects, vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. On this particular evening, October 30th, the Crosley Service estimated that 32 million people were listening in. Greetings, my fellow galactic travelers, and welcome back to Planet 8. This is your mission commander, Larry, speaking to you from our hidden base. Chief Engineer Bob is here by my side, as always, in the command center, and circling Planet 8 in our orbital spy satellite is Reconnaissance Officer Karen. And on this episode of Planet 8, we're going to be talking about the radio dramatization, the films, and there might even be 
I hear tell, a comic book that covers the H.G. Wells classic, War of the Worlds. Straight away, we're going to kick it over to our chief engineer, Bob. Take it away. Well, War of the Worlds, I love War of the Worlds, I got to say. And I'll I'll tell some a story or two about the movie when we get to it. But, um, yeah, I want to start off actually with, obviously the novel was published in, in 1898, which is long, long time ago. That's even like before I was born. So, <laughs> uh, history. yeah, I did read the novel quite a while ago. I think I read it like in high school or college. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which was shortly after it was published. But uh, <laughs> you and George Washington and Jesus. That's right. I think I lent it to Abraham Lincoln at one point. <laughs> so <laughs> before you went to the theater. Yeah, but as far as like movies and it, obviously, you know, I, I would assume, although I won't take it for granted that most listeners know that it was a radio dramatization at one point, but. Mm-hmm. If we go back, 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 back to 1925, mm. Cecil B. DeMille was interested in making a movie out of War of the Worlds. A script was written, but it never materialized. So think about that. You know, what, Cecil yeah. D. DeMille, like Ten Commandments and all these really epic films. Although in 1925, I don't know what kind of special effects they would have had. Well, I wonder, when was, like, First Man in the Moon made? They used, what did they use, sort of, like, 2D effects to make, like, the little rocket yeah, yeah. shot out of the well, can? Yeah, they had, like, models, and they had little cutouts and everything yeah. else. It would probably be the so same type may- of thing. Maybe something like that. So that would have been uh, interesting. In the 1930s, Sergei Einstein and makeup artist Wally Westmore, who I'm thinking is probably like one mm-hmm. of the first Westmores, and that's a whole storied Hollywood story right in and of itself. He wanted to tackle it, but again, that went nowhere. Yeah. So a third attempt, Alexander Corda in England showed interest, but he ended up doing Things to Come, which was another H.G. Oh. Wells story. Mm-hmm. So finally, oh, and also... And this one I thought was, like, really interesting. Alfred Hitchcock approached H.G. Wells in the 30s, wanting to make War of the Worlds. And Wells told him that Paramount had the rights tied up and he couldn't do it. Yeah. But I, think I, that, I did hear that one. Yeah, I think that one actually would probably would have been pretty interesting. Uh, but we fast forward to October 30th, 1938. And Orson Welles, no relation to H.G. Wells, produced a radio drama of the novel for Mercury Theater on the Air. And this was a radio show. Uh, It was billed as a Halloween story because it was actually the night before Halloween. And warnings went out before the show and leading up to the show, you know, saying that this was going to be a dramatization, blah, blah, blah. Uh, However, due due to his documentary style and the fact that it was... uh, presented as an actual radio show that was interrupted from time to time with reports of alien attack. Many people at the time absolutely believed it was real. And uh, that was basically, it's known now as the night that panicked America. 
<laughs> because uh, everyone thought there was a real alien invasion going on. And if you listen to it, probably the first half or so is in that documentary style. And then the second half, which kind of takes place after the attack, is kind of more of a radio drama. But it's that first half hour that freaked people out. Well, you think about it. I mean, it, it really is a sign of the times because I, I remember my mother telling me stories before her television. You know, she's from North Dakota. And uh, they'd all gather around the radio to listen to the Lone Ranger or the Shadow. And, uh, you know, there was no television. You had the newspaper. Um, it's, it's not like today where you just whip out your phone and, you know, figure out what the Kardashians are doing or who's running for what office. I, I could imagine sitting around the radio listening to this thing and being like, oh, my God, you know? Well, I mean, back, like, back then, I mean, the radio was thing. like their main source of information, like the Internet is today. And like some people with the Internet today, it's like, huh, the radio would never lie to me. You know, it's, right. it's on the radio. It's got to be true. Even so. some of those early films and television shows that were low budget, they wouldn't show the monster. They'd leave it to your imagination. We've talked about this off and on um, over the past 50 or so episodes. You know, the, the human imagination works wonders. And this radio, uh, I, I haven't heard it for a while, but Bob, I know you recently listened to it. Yeah, I it's mean, it's very entertaining. Pretty good, even by today's standards. Well, that's the thing. They they just listened to the first part of it and got so worked up, they loaded up the truck and moved to Beverly. You know, it was like, hey, we're getting out of here. Let's Get go. Out of those they, they didn't hear the rest of it. Now, the, the interesting thing, you know, a lot of people know that story. Yeah. But the interesting thing is that in Chile, they did a similar radio drama in 1944 and had similar results. Hmm. Huh. People in Chile were panicking. Then again, in 1949, Ecuador repeated the formula, but instead of panic, enraged listeners stormed the radio station and burned it to the ground. Ay, Dios mío. So, ay, caramba. Man, the CIA must have had a field day with all these things, studying them. Oh, yeah, Ecuador. I hey... I got to applaud Ecuador. What can I say? And in 1968, which you think, you know, hey, that's more modern times, right? People should be a little more aware of this stuff. New York re-recorded the drama, as it was with Wells. And although they made constant announcements in the weeks leading up to the broadcast and the night of the broadcast, the police still got hundreds of calls from people inquiring about an alien invasion. Cold War. Cold you would think war at, at, the, at the very least in 1968, if they heard Mars, they'd say, wait a second. <laughs> nope. Although I guess well, we, hadn't, we hadn't really gone to Mars yet, so I guess it could still be inhabited. We never know. I'm, I'm thinking 68 LSD, you know, that might have... Well, <laughs> that, that could be too. Bunch of burned out, LDS. bunch of burned out hippies. Hey man, I heard about an alien invasion on the radio. <laughs> so, um, but that all brings us up to 1953, 
And, mm. and in my opinion, one of the greatest science fiction films of all times, The War of the Worlds by George Powell. Mm, yes, yes. Oh, yes. I, I got to say, I hadn't seen this in several years. I have a uh, not even a Blu-ray, a DVD, and threw it in, and I really enjoyed it. I, I mean, it, it, it's just, it holds up um, the way it's paced, the way it's filmed. And it's it's garishly technicolor, but I still loved looking well, at it. That's the beauty of it. Yeah, it's fantastic that the, the um, characters, you know, are there. Um, to, even though it's a spectacle, you enjoy the characters in the story. Um, the design of the Martian machines, he, they didn't go with the tripods, but they kept a sort of a triangular three, you know, a theme of three with with everything about the Martians. And, uh, oh, yeah. yeah, it's just a great, great spectacle, great story. Well, I was reading about the whole tripod thing. And um, the, the Martian warships which I think are amazing in this. Yeah. They look like a combination of like a manta ray with a cobra head sticking mm-hmm. on the top. Uh, those were, were made by Albert Nozaki. And uh, originally, the legs of the warships were going to be uh, basically shown by having static electricity shot down three wires that were connected from the bottom of the model to the basically the floor of the of the uh, stage and uh, if you notice if you look at the very first shot of the ships coming out of the crater you can see these little static charges coming down like look they're for they form like three mm-hmm. legs but they, they talk about it yeah they, but they stopped after that because a safety and b they didn't want to burn down the set so <laughs> So you only see it in that one shot, and you have to look really close to see it. But, um, you know, you're saying that you saw it on DVD. you got to get the Criterion Blu-ray, because that is a thing of beauty. And well, do they, uh, do they take care of the wires? Because that's the only bad thing about that's, seeing it that's in high the definition. Key. That's the key, because this movie was originally shot in three-layer Technicolor. And when it's presented in three-layer Technicolor you don't see wires mm. when it's flattened out and, and put onto digi- onto like DVD, then the wires all show up like crazy. Yeah. Now the criterion Blu-ray, they present it in the three layer technical. You cannot see the wires. Nice. And the image is so sharp and the colors are so crisp. It's like, yeah, you know, it's like you're watching it in the movie theater back in 1953. Mm. And I've been telling I've been telling Larry this for like two months, and I think he finally watched it for this uh, podcast. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, I I uh, really appreciate the advice and uh, things that are shared between myself and my esteemed colleagues here on Planet Eight, other mm. than their views on Batman versus Superman. <laughs> I die first. Uh, no, Bob was saying, oh, because I do love The War of the Worlds, uh, George Powell. I mean, that was one of the first movies I saw uh, when I was a kid. Um, look, not to take anything away from Harryhausen, but um, those ships and the sound and the color. Oh. And, man, 
so Bob was like, oh, it is a thing of beauty. You know, he was just like, really, you gotta. So I invested in it. And um, my God, he was right. I mean, that thing, um, you know, it's not like watching a brand new movie. It's the same film. Um, You know, one of the things I like about the movies in the 50s, there wasn't a lot of special effects CGI. So these actors really had to sell the story. Mm -hmm. I think the acting is fantastic. Um, But yeah, it is it is crisp. The sound is crisp. Um, The I started watching the documentaries on, um, you know, getting the criterion treatment and then also, you know, the Blu-ray uh, conversion and stuff and it's just it's it's a great great investment well I, i'm gonna have to do it i think because i criterion does put out a lot of, of really nice discs um like i uh got like island of lost souls and godzilla and a, a few other things from them and uh it, that was the one thing that was aggravating about watching it this time was just like, you know, not everything is better on DVD or Blu-ray. Some of the older stuff, you know, like, like you said, you see the wires and things like that. So that would be a, a worthwhile investment to me to, to be able to see it nice and clean and beautiful, all the bright colors, but no wires. So, well, that that's kind of key on any release really, because, you know, depending on, what they do. I mean, sometimes they'll go in with a DVD or Blu-ray release and they'll actually erase the wires, mm. digitally erase them. But, you know, a lot of people are like, hey, that's part of the movie. You got to leave it in. But you got to remember, like, back in the 50s or the 60s or whenever these old films were made, you have to remember the format they were made for. Like I say, the War of the Worlds was uh, three-layer Technicolor. That's what it was made for. They didn't think about, oh, you know, someday they're going to flatten this thing out and put it on DVD and whatever. Um, Going back to one of my favorite subjects, Ultraman. When Ultraman first came out on DVD, and it was beautiful, sharp, great. But yeah, zippers, wires, they're all in there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the crew that made Ultraman basically looked at these things and said, wait, wait, wait. These were not made to be seen like this. They were made to be watched on a 19-inch TV with rabbit ears. Yeah. You know, you can't see. That's what we, you know, we only had to hide the wires so much for that. But now that it's like crystal clean, pristine, whatever, you know, yeah, everything shows shows up. That was one of the things with the remastered Star Trek, the original series, when they put that out on Blu-ray. You can actually see Spock's ears, you know, the makeup effect where they kind of missed a little piece of glue here and there. Um, Well, that's why they had to redo the special effects, because the old special effects wouldn't hold up. And what happened was when they put those on like a DVD or something... You could see, like, when the Enterprise would fly through space, you could see, like, mat boxes and things around it. Yeah. You know, so they had to, they couldn't even salvage that. That wasn't even something they could clean up. Clean up. And I think they did a, a nice job with the uh, the new effects that they, they did for it. They didn't go overboard on things. You know, I mean, a good example of that was the arena episode, where they could have been very tempted to just, let's make a CGI Gorn. Right. And instead, the the most they did was they had like an eyelid on the Gorn and it would flicker every once in a while. You know, uh-huh. they they had enough respect for 
the material that they knew when to be subtle, you know, and not not completely wipe out the well, that, original. Well, that was kind of freaky because I remember the first time I watched that on, on DVD and it's like, I'm like, hey, there's Gorn. And all of a sudden he blinks. I'm like, oh, what? Holy crap. <laughs> what the hell was that? You know, and I, I will say there's something to be said. Uh, a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, they had uh, Bride of Frankenstein at the uh, AMC. They, oh, they, the they do this Fathom one. Events, yeah. Yeah. And um, out, out in the wild, you know, after the he escapes from the ruins of the windmill, you can see it's on a set and the backdrop you know has seams in it and stuff but some things are best left alone something like that doesn't really bother me but the wires because i've seen those transfers uh, on vhs the wires on those martian ships is it, it removes you from the movie you it's know a little distracting well i mean yeah. yeah i mean the thing about it is like it's not one or two wires no, <laughs> you know oh, those yeah, those like ships they had like yeah. yeah like twelve fifteen wires on them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, but there's films. Oh, go ahead, Walker. Sorry. Oh no, I mean it's still the the ships are absolutely beautiful. You just have to like right. tune the wires out of your head after a while. I was gonna say there are some films, modern films, you know, quote unquote CGI. Um, comes to mind is the um, Scorpion King. That oh. is the worst. It just takes me out of the film at that point. Well, yeah, my know? my main complaint about CGI, and it's not it's gotten better, but I mean, you know, a few years ago, would be two things. One, the lack of weight. Mm. You know, it's like CGI characters look like they're almost floating over the ground as they're walking. Yeah. And then f- floating again, floating skin, mm. where you would see skin texture that wouldn't move naturally with you know the creature or the person or whatever yeah. and it would kind of you know like i say it's like floating skin it's like it doesn't move along with the image um obviously things have gotten better now but uh yeah that would that would probably take me out of a movie more than seeing a couple wires or a zipper oh, I, I remember when we talked with webster he was telling us stories about how you know, this is what they planned on doing with the CGI, and then for whatever reason, they had to go in a different direction, and it just, they did what they could with whatever the film was. Yeah, so. I mean, go back and listen to the Webster episode. I mean, he had a lot of good points on sort of the history of effects and CG and that whole thing. Well, yeah. you know, one thing I didn't realize about the original uh 53 film a war of the worlds until i listened to some of the documentary stuff on the disc was that uh the famous gorilla man charlie gamora actually created with his daughter the the martian that runs into the farmhouse and uh he was inside that kind of (laughs) cylindrical body working the little arms and stuff and and uh that was a real surprise to me and it they had worked all night long before the next day when they were going to shoot that scene. And uh, his daughter was on the, the DVD saying, you know, parts of it were still like wet that <laughs> they hadn't cured quite yet when they had to shoot the scene. They had had to kind of redesign it. Um, yeah, and they, she they threw she that was, on him at the she, last minute, too. 
Yeah, a lot of it was like, oh, wait, we got to redo this. We got to put this. Oh, you want to put this in? And she had little squeeze bottles she was squeezing to make the veins on the arms pulsate and everything. Um, But yeah, as a kid, that Martian, when it would touch Ann Robinson's shoulder with those skinny little suction cup fingers, that always freaked me out and she, her and her reaction too because it she doesn't wow. scream immediately she kind of has that moment where she can't breathe and then she's like ah it's so effective you know it is. They, they have, a, they have a couple back then was just phenomenal and they had a couple kind of jump scares in that mm-hmm. and uh yeah i know charlie gamora was like kneeling on a dolly and they were like pulling him along <laughs> so, you know, I think they need to have, basically they made half a, half an alien. It didn't have any legs or whatever, but, right. but yeah, he had yeah. these little pulleys inside the arms that he would pull to make the fingers mm-hmm. bend because the longs were, the arms are so long. Yeah. Well, it's like a lot of gorilla suits they had too, where they, the arms would be longer than uh, natural human arms. So they had to yeah. have the, the pulleys to work, but that was pretty cool that he, uh, he worked on that. Effect. His, his daughter was at Monster Palooza one year, wasn't she? Yeah, she was. Yeah, I, I went by the booth and and uh, talked to her. I have a button from the, but I she I wasn't. We didn't talk about War of the Worlds. I never knew he did War of the Worlds, so uh, that was pretty neat. Well, what did you guys but talk what, about then? What else? What else did he do? Oh, he did. He did lots of. You know, she just talked about a lot of the gorilla films he had done. Um, I only talked to her for a few minutes. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't there long enough probably to get the whole history. I think she did a panel, though, too, Larry. Do you remember? Um, Vaguely, I remember her talking about her dad and some of the stuff that he did. Yeah. Uh, it was mostly gorilla suits. Mm-hmm. But um, when you mentioned that story, it kind of jogged my memory. Yeah. Because I think they were making a documentary film on him, and I think that's why she was at Monster Palooza that year. Right, right. So, but, so there were like there were like things where you could go to him and meet people and talk <laughs> to them face to face. That's amazing. Yes, Bob. It was. Uh, it, it was, was like Zoom, but it was in person. God. The people were there, but. Uh, also, what do you guys think about, I'm sure you guys have seen the footage um, Harryhausen made when he wanted to do War of the Worlds, and he had the little octopus-like alien. You know, I, I love Ray Harryhausen. I love all his movies. But I think it was better just to have the limited shots here and there of the alien and, you know, like at the end... Because that, that shot or the sequence that he did was the alien coming out of the ship and, mm-hmm. you know, dying, basically. I thought it was much more effective just to have the arm. You know, they, all they did was they had the arm come out of the ship. And then Diana stopped with the, with the squeeze bottle, so the veins <laughs> stopped moving. And then they actually changed the lighting. So there's a slight, like a green tint. Mm-hmm. And that's... That's all it took to tell you that, hey, this, you know, this thing is dead. Yeah. Yeah, it's just laying there not moving. So I think, and even, uh, and we'll get to the Tom Cruise War of the Worlds, but it was a similar thing that Spielberg did, where the arm just came out of the ship, and, yeah, that was, that was they don't show this alien writhing in pain and whatever. Um, yeah. 
But yeah, I mean, it was a cool alien, kind of an octopus-type alien that, that Ray made. But, you know, I, in this one instance, I think it was probably better that Ray did not do the movie. What say you, Walker? I don't know. I always would love to be able to jump into our alternate reality machine and see what his, you know, version would be. I'm sure he would have done tripods because it would be fun to animate the three legs and and all that. But uh, calibrate the interocitor and I'll send you over. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, he he couldn't do War of the Worlds. He ended up doing Earth versus the Flying Saucers. That was like his alien invasion movie. So and you have no. to think that a, the elements of Earth versus the Flying Saucers probably would have been in War of the Worlds or vice mm-hmm. versa. And that's a, a great movie. I love that movie. So I think we got, you know, we got, yeah, maybe it's the best of both worlds. We got George Powell's War of the Worlds and we got Harryhausen's Earth versus the Flying Saucers. So, you know, I, I think I'm like you guys. I love Ray Harryhausen, his work. Um, it, it was an early, you know, like, mock-up that he was doing who knows what the final thing would have looked like you know because when you make a film it goes through a process of the director and the producers and you know everyone you know what was the budget going to be like for the special effects and and what would it have ultimately looked like or, or turned out to be i'm i think i'm in the camp with karen you know set the coordinates let's take a look at that alternate reality version of it and see for me uh the george powell were the world's I appreciate the the glimpse of the alien that we had, but those war machines to me represent the aliens. It, it's just the sound of them flying, the sound of the guns shooting off. It, it's 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 as iconic to me as the sound effects used in Star Wars, R two D two and the Tie Fighters. It, it is yeah. Just, burned into my my brain those sound effects are pretty cool when you think about just when like the cobra head is moving and it's got that kind of hissing kind of and then the when the heat ray is firing and it's like you know and it's or like when it pulsators like yeah yeah and then I was like, God. And like the the heat ray is devastating, but then the little green disintegration, and you see like that one general, he's in the bunker, and he's like, everybody out, everybody out, and then he gets hit, and you see the skeleton glowing inside, and then he's just gone, he's disintegrated. Those are still really cool effects, you know. Yeah. Well, that that general, I got that general, I got to say, that was Les Tremaine. Oh, well, okay, he survived. I was talking about the guy. That oh, the other guy, okay. Well, one, one of these episodes, Bob's going to join in us when we do special effects sound, and he's going to go, pew, 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 or <laughs> he, he'll trust me. It'll just give him a little more time. I haven't done that yet. Okay. <laughs> so. give, us your, give us your best Martian Ray, Bob. <laughs> well, I got to say, you know, you know how they made that Ray? No. That was actually the sparks coming off of a welder's torch. Huh. And they oh. superimposed it over the the cobra head of the ship. Well, it looked hot. Which is really cool. <laughs> the, green, the green ones were just like optical, you know, cartoon effects. But, but the other, you know, the main ray was, uh, yeah, a welder's torch. Nice. You know, speaking of Les Tremaine, I, I have a story. Um, oh, <laughs> so when I was when I was a youngster, 
um, they used to hold these conventions in Los Angeles, and they were really creatively named the Sci-Fi, Fantasy, and Horror Con. Um, <laughs> and so uh, several times, I, I used to go, my brother Steve, who's six years older than me, he and his friends would go, and I would go along. And uh, one year, they had the, the whole cast, well, the main cast from War of the Worlds, so they had... Um, uh, Gene Barry, Ann Robinson, and Les Tremaine there, and a, and a few other people. And it was like in this big ballroom. They had it in this big hotel. It was really cool. And uh, so we were like, oh, War of the Worlds, let's go, you know, let's go see that. So we sat for the panel. And, uh, you know, they had the actors talk and stuff. And uh, this dude gets up to ask a question. And I hate to, you know, I love our people, our nerd people. We're all, you know, in the great, this great brother and sisterhood of nerddom. But sometimes there is sort of a stereotypical nerd out there who he had on a windbreaker, he had on glasses, and, you know, he's, he gets up and he goes, Mr. Tremaine, I would like to know why the Air Force used the flying wing to drop the bomb on the Martian war machines. <laughs> and poor Lester Maine, he, he like sits there and he looks on either side of him and he goes, it, it was a movie. <laughs> like, I, I wasn't actually in the, the military forces. I suppose they used it because it looked really good. And the guy just stood there like for a minute like that wasn't the answer you wanted. <laughs> and he's like, "All right, thank you." <laughs> he sat down. There, I love moments like that. We, I, you know, we've been to a couple of conventions where I, I, I'm thinking of Jimmy Doohan and this guy. It was in San Francisco, actually, and this guy was like, "Yes, I, you know, why is it that?" Um, you know, we could hear what the Romulans were saying, uh, but no one was using the universal translate. And, and we do have like, well, you know, it was, it was a cheap effect that we would use in the TV show. We had low budgets. And so we had to. No, I understand that. But they're Romulans. <laughs> yes. But, sir, you know, there were actors. Oh, actors. But but they were still Romulans. And he's like. Well, actually, this is a trade secret. Please, you guys, I'm going to swear you to secrecy. NBC had a special deal through the Romulan Empire that on these Zenith television sets, translators were built in. And the guy was like, oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> and everyone was just hysterically, you know, not to make fun of the guy, but it was like, God, you know, you just... Anyway, hey, somebody, yeah. some people live this stuff. <laughs> yeah, and they go on to do some podcasts. Some people even do podcasts. But. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say, talking about Les Tremaine, there's another. Uh, Les Tremaine was a very famous voice actor as well. But there was another yeah. voice actor in the movie. About an hour in, you see this reporter walking along with a recorder and mm -hmm. talking, and that's Paul Frees. Yeah. Yeah. And Paul Frees did. You know, a lot of the old trailers back then, that's his voice narrating the trailers. Um, he also did the voice of, like, the Burgermeister Meisterburger and the old Santa Claus was coming to town. And he was also mm -hmm. the voice of Boris Badenoff and Rocky and Bullwinkle. So, 
That was one of the few times you actually saw his face on screen. Usually he's behind a mic somewhere. He uh, also does a lot of the voiceover work for the Haunted Mansion. Yes. Yeah, I was just going to say. Disneyland. Yeah. yeah. And he uh, and Les Tremaine voice. worked on a lot of the, the Japanese, dubbed Japanese monster movies. Mr. Freeze got around. That's right. <laughs> Mr. Freeze, what? Now we're yeah. talking Batman? <laughs> Don't say Batman versus Superman, whatever you do. I wasn't going to go there. Okay. You know, the, the one thing it. I thought, well, let's talk about, I'll bring this up when we talk about the Tom Cruise version. I had a point, but I'll, I'll, I'll save it. Let's move on then, if you yeah. guys are ready. Um, yeah, well, my one little story really quickly about War of the Worlds. We did a show at the Bell Theater a while back called the Sci-Fi X-Fest. And uh, the Bell had been doing this X-Fest, which was like a UFO convention thing. And I talked to him and I said, well, hey, why don't we, we'll do a sci-fi side of it. You guys do your UFO side, we'll do the sci-fi side, and we'll combine it like a sci-fi X-Fest. Mm-hmm. And we had Marta Kristen, who played Judy from uh, Lost in Space. She was our guest. And that was just my excuse to just program a bunch of movies that I wanted to see on the big screen I hadn't seen. And one of those, of course, was War of the Worlds. So usually during our shows, I don't get to watch the movies. I'm running around doing stuff. I made sure, though, that my butt was in the seats in theater as we were watching War of the Worlds. And, uh, yeah, it looked great up on the big screen. I'll bet. And it was probably a lot of fun to watch it with, like, a group of people. That's, That's one thing I haven't been able to do with that film. It's always been at home with friends and family. But one of the things that I loved about going to the movies was that um, shared experience with a group of people, you know, the gasps and the oohs and the ahs and clapping at the end and and all that stuff. That must have been a lot of fun. Yes, I miss the theater days. (laughs) Actually, as we are recording this, I'm actually going to the movies this afternoon. Believe oh, it or not, I haven't been in the movies since, uh, you know, probably in like, what, six, seven months? Uh, wh- which one's time. open? Uh, they're doing a special screening of the CG Loop on the Third movie. <laughs> yeah, wow. this is uh, over in, uh, going down to Earth and over to Redwood City to the Century over there uh, this oh. afternoon, and we're going to watch Loop on the Third, the first I had no idea they they had actual movie houses open for business. You know, when they do open, I mean, even this one, it's like when I went to book the tickets and I booked it for like the four of us, Lieutenant Debbie and Ensign Michael and Leah. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the seating, you know, you usually go in and you pick your seats. Yeah. Really limited. Yeah. So you, you pick a block of seats and they automatically block the seats in front of you and behind you off and two seats on each side. Mm. So it's like you book two tickets and suddenly you've taken up like a dozen seats. How do you leave your seat and go to the potty if there's people around you? No, can't do it. Sorry. <laughs> Bring, Bring a bucket. bucket. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, oh, yeah, so the popcorn buckets are for. <laughs> well, have fun. You'll have to report back to us and let us know how your experience was. It'll be interesting. But anyway, back to War of the Worlds. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, War of the Worlds, yeah, it was great watching it in a movie theater. 
with a, you know, a house full of like-minded people. I mean, that's what going to the movies is all about, really. Yeah. Right, right. Okay, well, uh, we're going to transition over to the version of War of the Worlds that I've only seen once. <laughs> the, uh, and that was, Tom, what, yesterday or last night? <laughs> uh, well, n- n- well, okay, so over to Chief Engineer Bob. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the Tom Cruise version of what you know. One thing I'll say about Tom Cruise is think what you will about him you have to kind of put the personal side aside because he may i make some pretty good movies top gun and i would classify war of the worlds in that yeah i see you know it's a good movie he does a good job um i watched it again i've seen it before i saw it in the theaters when it came out and uh i watched it again you know this week leading up to the podcast here and I think it holds up. I think it's it's really good. And I know Karen's got some issues with the ending, but, um, <laughs> you know, I thought, and, you know, hey, you know, if you think Tom Cruise is an ass, well, then this movie fits in because his character's an ass at the beginning. <laughs> I mean, the way he treats his kids and all that, and it's like, you know, as the movie goes on, then, you know, he takes on more of a parental role. But... Um, I think the one scene where he and his daughter are in the basement of that one house oh, with the yeah. guy and you know it kind of builds up where the guy originally you think hey the guy's being real nice he's, he's letting them in he's taking care of them and then suddenly you know he's like sitting on the stairs talking to his daughter and getting a little creepy and then he's like panicking and he's wanting to we got to go out and fight them and we got to take them on and, and all that. And Tom Cruise finally figures out he's got to take this guy out. And he just like has his daughter put her hands over her ears and sing this song and close her eyes. And he like goes in this room and shuts the door and kills the guy. And I think that's like a really powerful scene. And they, yeah. they pulled it off really well. But uh, you know, <clears throat> it, it was a good scene. Uh, it was a young Dakota Fanning who was playing his daughter, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, good and, and she is a good. Yeah, she she's a good actress. Even at that age, she. Uh, I can't remember his son's the actor's name. You know, look, uh, and this is just me. Uh, I I don't really care too much about Tom's personal life. I don't know all the ins and outs of it. I just don't like his style of, of acting. Now, every once in a while, the Minority Report is one of the exceptions to the rule. I do like the Minority Report. Um, I don't necessarily like the character that Tom Cruise plays, but I do like the supporting cast. Um, Jasmine loves uh, Top Gun, so and and again, the the supporting cast in Top Gun worked for me. I'm, I'm not saying anything against the supporting cast for Tom Cruise's War of the Worlds, but there wasn't a lot of them other than the, the children. I, I will say the special effects were amazing. I did like the look of the, the war machines. They they went back, Bob was saying, uh, they went back to the three-legged um, version of the invasion fleet. 
Um, I also like the uh, ride at Universal Studios that you get to drive through <laughs> <laughs> on the tram. The jet. Yeah, well, that's thank God impressive. for that. And, yeah, that is actually impressive. If you guys haven't had a chance, who knows when they're going to open theme parks up again. But um, it, it is amazing because, you know, what they could do with CGI they chose not to they chose and i wonder if they had a deal with universal like hey buy us a 747 and and we'll let you guys have it for a ride or you know a drive through <laughs> whatever it's uh i mean yeah i mean the opticals in the movie and i thought you know the direction of course of spielberg but I, I think the direction is amazing and the fact that you know you've got this and the same thing with like night living dead and some other movies you have this invasion or this thing going on throughout the world and this movie is just concentrating on this guy and his two kids and his perspective and his observance of what's going on around him. It personalizes the movie. I think, it, I, like I said, I really, I, I really enjoyed it. Let me ask you guys something, because to me, Spiel, a Spielberg film kind of has like a certain feel and a look to it, whether it's The Goonies, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jaws, um... You know, his his action-adventure films, certainly not Schindler's List, but do you feel that War of the Worlds kind of had that Spielberg touch to it? I don't mm. think it has it as much as, like, Close Encounters or some of his other films. Right. Um, I think it was a more subdued directing job by, by Spielberg in this one. Well, and I'm not trying to poo-poo Tom Cruise. Oh, go ahead, Walker. Sorry. I, I would say it has less of the Spielbergian touches, except the ending. This is my problem with the ending, right? <laughs> so they he makes it, you know, he's got his daughter. They're, they're you know, trying to get, you know, uh, out of trouble. They're in the city. Then they see the war machines are collapsing and blah, blah, blah. Then they get to, I think it's Boston, where the grandparents are. Miraculously, the grandparents' block just looks hunky-dory. Everything's fine and perfect. And who comes running out of the house? The grandparents, who were paid, played by Gene Barry and Ann Robinson from the original movie. Everybody looks healthy and fine. His ex-wife. And then his, grand, his, his son comes up. His son, who had disappeared into the midst of battle. And so we into a, have into a fireball Spielberg. over the hill. Right. His, it's this typical Spielberg schmaltz ending. Everybody's happy and it's all sweet and gooey. And it's just like the man cannot help himself. He's got to like wrap a pretty bow on the end and everything's perfect. And it's just like, oh, God, shoot me. I just it just yeah, it just killed it for me. You know, I, I feel as though that there was a discussion between Tom and, and Stephen and Tom's like, yeah, I want to do this. And Stephen's like, yeah, but I want to do this. And Tom's like, look. Give me three quarters of the film my way, and you can have the ending. And Spielberg's like, deal. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. I don't know, but it, uh, it really didn't have a Spielberg feel. God, I'm trying to think. There was this movie that he did about this little boy that's a robot. It was like a Pinocchio story. Artificial was, intelligence, yes. a AI, artificial intelligence. The AI. Yeah. That was such a heavy-handed Spielberg story, mm -hmm. and. Uh, and not and again, that's not why I don't particularly like this film. It's because it didn't have Spielberg on it. But um, the ending troubled me as well, Walker. I, I hate when they, you know, it's like this this tragic thing that potentially defines a character's life moving forward. And 
No. Nope. Yeah, kind of well, I mean, I'll have to. I'll have to say. I mean, to this day, and probably for that reason, I hate ET. Oh, I've always hated ET. I saw it in the theaters when it first came Ouch. out. And I haven't seen it since. It's like God. <laughs> okay, show of hands. Who owns a version of the George Pal War of the Worlds? Uh, listeners, you can't see. Oh, hands, yeah, you can't see hands, but they're all up. And uh, who has a version of DVD Blu-ray of the Tom Cruise War of the Worlds? Yeah. Yeah. Arm up. Arm up. Oh, you actually own a... Okay. I've got... Yeah, I've got a DVD. I, w I should get a... If it's on Blu-ray, I should get the Blu-ray, but... Yeah, no, I like it. I have it. Oh, I mean... Now, who has, who has a uh, DVD or Blu-ray of E.T.? Ah, no hands came chirp, up. Chirp, chirp. <laughs> I will say, I, I actually, when I went back and, and watched this, my attitude going into it was like, uh, I don't know if I'm going to want to see this. But I actually enjoyed it much more than I thought I would. I still have a negative impression of the ending, but I agree with Bob. It's, it's a well-made movie. It's very exciting. Um, I like the kind of the path that Tom Cruise characters is on. Tom Cruise, man, for a little guy, he runs fast. I'll give him that. <laughs> Every movie, he's running. That man is running. Um, but, but you know, he's a jerk. He's, he's selfish. He's like an adolescent. He hasn't grown up. And then he's got the responsibility of these kids, and he, he starts shouldering that responsibility. So it's an interesting you know, path that he has to go on with his, his kids. So you just have to watch this movie and turn it off like five minutes before the end. That's probably what I need to do. Like once the aliens it. die, I just need to turn it off. And it's like, oh, he's still got his daughter, you know, hey, I, for having the world destroyed, that's not bad, you know. Well, that's the have one thing about, about the 1953 movie is it ends as soon as you see that the Martians are dead and the war machines kind of fall over or whatever. That's the end. Mm -hmm. So, right. Yeah, they just need that's, to. That's good enough. Stop They're it. Dead. At, stop it at that point on the new movie. We still lost Uncle Matthew. We lost the three dumbasses who thought they could wave the white flag at the aliens. Right. You know, we had losses, but you know, people were tougher back then. So Here's another question for you guys. There are two scenes, nearly identical scenes, of people like rioting slash looting in these films. In the first film. Yeah. When the scientists from Pacific Tech load up their trucks with the instrumentation because they're going to save the world, there's a bunch of guys that, you know, take over the trucks and take, you know, take the stuff away. And the cops on the scene say, uh, I wrote it down, it was like, they say robbers, thieves, and worse, they wouldn't leave when everyone else did. So in the old movie, it was like, oh, these looters are the dregs of society. In the new movie, though, when Tom Cruise has the car with the older engine and his, it's the only car that'll drive, they get to the ferry and then all these people assault him and take his car. And the guy who steals the car, he gets assaulted and so on. It's really just implied those are just like everyday people. So well, I think in both scenes, they're still assholes. Yeah, but, yeah, I would know, agree. But desperate, it's sort of desperate times call for desperate measures, I guess, and... You know, in the 50 years that passed, it was sort of like, oh, only bad people would do these things. And then oh, no. by the time we get to 2005, it's like, oh, if, if things go south, everybody's going to be out for themselves, right? Well, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, look at look at things today. Look at all the, you know, the riots and things we have today. I mean, you have, uh, you have a protest and suddenly people are in there looting. 
So yeah, no, nothing's I, changed. I, I kind of got confused. Was that a question or a comment? I'm just saying, what do you guys think of, of the mindset? You know, because I kind of feel like, yeah, if everything went south, if we were invaded, I think it would be every man for himself because I don't yeah. feel like we have any unity anymore. Whereas in the 50s, people were still thinking, you know, oh, we'd work together or we'd do what the government told us and only the criminals would misbehave, you know. I don't know. It was just well, an interesting I think, reflection. I think the problem, too, is that they're not necessarily bad people. They think what they're doing is right. They're going out there and doing whatever they can to protect their family, save their family, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. They think, you know, they think they're right in doing what they're but doing. But at what cost? Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, if you guys were in that situation and you had to save yourself and your loved one or loved ones or whatever, to what extent would you go to? Right. Would you hit someone over the head and take their car? I'd like to think, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> Well, I guess um, you never really know, you know until you're in that situation, yeah. Yeah, if someone comes at me, I have to defend myself, sure. But, uh, you know, and, and in the modern film, the guy steals the car and then he gets, you know, jacked. Yeah. You know, what is the line in, in uh, Star Wars Episode One? There's always a bigger fish. <laughs> so, I, I don't know. I mean, you, you know, there are glimpses of humanity where we help each other and we do the right thing. Um, but who knows if they were to do a remake of the thing now and, and show uh, well, the, I don't know and this is kind of jumping off subject but there's this movie that Jazz wants me to watch it's uh, Anarchy or Night of uh, there's one night a year where they let people oh, go out The Purge Purge, Purge The Red and Hour apparently there's like five or six of these movies yeah do you guys have you seen those is that I, you know people just go ape shit one night and yeah, I saw the first... It's like the Red Hour, Larry. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, I saw that episode Thank of Star Trek, so I don't need to watch anything else. But... <laughs> you have an hour of debauchery. Go! <laughs> you are not of the body. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. I, like I say, I, don't, I, I think there are... You know, they always say there's limits... Those people won't go beyond, but I think yeah. if they're pushed, this takes a little push to get over that limit, and then Ooh. you know, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Let off. me ask you guys this: kind of jumping back to the first film because we didn't really have that scene in in the uh, Tom Cruise, uh, the three guys saying, "Oh." wave a, a white flag everybody knows that means we come in peace and you know you get the great sound effect and and they you know just wind up in three piles of dust well see Was we had we had that movie and then we had independence day where they're all on top of the building and they're going welcome welcome and they just get blown yeah. away so now people know <laughs> going into war of the worlds they all know okay yeah we're not messing with these guys to, to me, there was there's a difference in the mindset that we had in the 50s, and maybe we're desensitized to the point now where it's just like, no, they're trying to eat us, or you know, whatever their uh, nefarious. See goal now that be. that that's an interesting point too, because in the novel, yeah, they were hoarding people and eating them, mm -hmm. and in the Spielberg Tom Cruise film, they were doing the same thing. 
They were like yeah. sucking all these people up and then they, you know, the ships would like digest them and spit out the blood, which I think actually goes a long way to describe or explain why this virus gets into their system. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Whereas in 1953, you didn't have that. They were always, you know, except for when they came down in the farmhouse, they're always on the ships. So how did they catch this virus or this cold? Yeah, I guess they just didn't. Maybe it's uh, you have to fill in the blanks that, okay, maybe they were capturing people and we just didn't see it. So maybe each ship had a scout. And, you know, I don't know that the scouts touched people's shoulders, but somehow, <laughs> some way, you know. Well, it's like, uh, um, it's like First Men in the Moon, the Harryhausen film, where the whole race of, of moon men, you know, basically, well, it starts off in Victorian times when they actually go uh-huh. to the moon. And then it, it advances years later, and there's a landing on the moon, and they find this whole race, and they're all dead. And they were all killed by a virus or a bacteria. And the main character's like, oh, yeah, I had a little sniffle when I was up there. But, yeah, I mean, I guess that's our best defense, you know, especially well, in 2020. Now, and, right? and look, you know, in the world that we live in now, in, in you know, the fall of 2020, uh, you have to wear a mask when you go out. You have to, you know, so, hand sanitizer. And, well, you know, that, that's one thing. We will not have an, an alien invasion in 2020. <laughs> I was just going to say, this is the best time. If there's <laughs> evil aliens who want to invade us, come now. <laughs> I mean, it's screwing up all of the aliens. Vampires can't drink clean blood. I mean, it, it's just, it's messing up the whole uh, g- uh, genre. That's right. I think the werewolves are still okay. Werewolves are okay and zombies. Uh, you, you know, one of the things uh, I was thinking is that how COVID spreads, I could see, because, you know, when you watch, like, The Walking Dead, and you're like, how the hell did society fall so quickly? I mean, the vestiges of government and commerce and, and oh, the military. It, it's not that hard to believe. Yeah. Airlines are going bankrupt. The the stores that have always been there, restaurants, they're, they're just... The money dries up, and our, our systems are super fragile. It's well, it's, it's like the end. The end credits of one of the newer Planet of the Apes films. I can't remember which one it was, but they have the graphic of they're showing how mm-hmm. things spread and how it's yeah. like you know you get this line from one point A to point B, and then from point B it spreads out to C, D, E, and F, and from each of those yeah. it spreads out. You know, and it's like yeah, it's just is how fast something can spread. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of scary, but, um, on that note, listeners be safe, wear a mask. Yeah. <laughs> so and, unless, unless aliens are invading, then masks off. <laughs> Everybody run to the ships, breathe on the ships, start coughing on those. Yeah, ships right. Breathe, fart and sneeze. Like you've never done before. Well, there were a couple other things I wanted to mention. Yeah. That were War of the Worlds related. Oh, uh, back on that, subject. Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> just, just bring it back around. Um, there's, there's a um, series of like young adult sci-fi novels that were written in the '60s by a guy named John Christopher, 
a British writer that's called the Tripod series. Um, it's it's basically it's based off of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, and it's sort of like if the Martians had taken over. So it's post-apocalyptic, um, and the technology level like is driven back to the Middle Ages. The Martians are in control of everybody. They do this thing called capping. So when somebody goes through puberty, they put this implant in their head to make them docile and control them. And so uh, uh, there's a resistance that's built up of people who the cap, the implant doesn't work on them. Um, and uh, it's a pretty good series. The first book in the series is called The White Mountains. And then there's a couple of other books. Um, but it's definitely based off of War of the Worlds. So if anybody's interested in that, it's it's a pretty good series of books. And they made a TV series out of it in Britain in the 80s. Uh, but I actually have never seen that, so I can't say anything about the TV series. I think and it's then, available for streaming somewhere, because I remember kind of running across it when I was, like, looking for stuff for the podcast. Hmm. Yeah, it's. I think it was fairly popular. It might have only had like two seasons, but uh, I know the, the books are are pretty. Same name as the book, the show. What's that, Larry? Uh, is it the same name as the books? The I show? think the the show is called Tripods. Okay. So, but yeah, it's definitely you know, um, the tripods and everything are all taken from the original H.G. Wells story. Mm. And then on the comics front, um, one of those uh, comics from the 70s I really used to enjoy was Kill Raven, uh, also called War of the Worlds, in, in Amazing Adventures, some Marvel comics. So Kill Raven, basically the premise was uh, the Martians come back in the year 2001, the far-flung mm. year 2001. They come back and they conquer the world and... Uh, they keep some humans for entertainment, and uh, some of the entertainment is gladiators. So there's this young man called Killraven, and he's a gladiator, but for whatever reason, they can't control him, and he breaks free, and he frees some other gladiators, and they start a rebellion. It's very Spartacus-like. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's it was a really good series. I think it lasted about, I want to say somewhere, I didn't do all my research, but it uh, lasted about 20 issues. Um, the main writer was Don McGregor. The main artist was P. Craig Russell. It was actually a really beautifully illustrated series. And they've collected those stories now um, in a trade paperback so you can get it. But uh, really interesting stuff. They still had like tripods. They had a lot of different like mutant creatures that the Martians would breed to mm. fight Kill Raven and... Uh, some really interesting uh, sort of superheroics meets science fiction stories. So if anybody's interested, they should look that up. That's cool. Amazing. I think it's funny. The, um, maybe Paramount has the, the copyright. You never see the 1950s version of the ships. Uh, usually they're like the tripods. Well, the 1950s yeah. versions of the ships, so they returned in, what was it, Robinson Crusoe on Mars? Yeah, my And uh, I think they were used, like, in... There was a, a War of the Worlds TV series that utilized the ships as well. They didn't have the original models. I think they, they redid the models. In fact, Bur Bob Burns has one of the models from the TV series. Oh, nice. And it, yeah, basically it's the same as the 53 version. 
You know, what's so, we talked a little bit about this before we started recording, but what is so striking to me is how short a time it was, you know, um, relatively between like when Wells wrote the book and then Orson Wells did the the radio play and then the first movie was made. I mean, the book was 1898. Orson Wells does it in 1938. That's only 40 years. And like we were talking about, for us, that would be like 1980. I mean, geezers like us, something that happened in 1980 seems pretty, pretty recent, you know. And then the the first movie is 1953. So that's only 15 years after Wells does the radio play. So that would seem like nothing like, oh, you know, Wells just did the play. Let's do a movie, right? Well, you know, that stuff happened recently, one right after another. I mean, yeah, I mean, the whole thing is amazing, but um who knows? I mean, I assume we'll probably have another version coming up. I mean, we're about due, right? For another version yeah. of the worlds. Yeah, it's been yeah. 15 years. So, but I mean, if you think back though on on H.G. Wells though, and think about the contributions he made to the science fiction genre. I mean, he wrote War of the Worlds, which is probably one of the first alien invasion stories. He wrote The Invisible Man. Mm -hmm. He wrote The Time Machine. Now, how many times do we deal with time travel in movies and TV shows? And, uh, yeah, I've, and things to come. So I think, yeah, H.G. Wells and Jules Verne were probably two of the pioneers of this whole genre. Granddaddies. Yeah. We owe them a lot. So. And we owe George Powell because that movie is yeah. still freaking beautiful. Yes. Definitely. So we're going to pitch in and buy the Blu-ray for Karen. <laughs> I got this one, Bob. Thanks. Okay. I got it. But yeah, if uh, you guys both endorse it, I'm I'm there. Yeah, I've been, funny. I, I, I got been, it, and then I didn't have a chance to watch it. God, for months. Um, you know, because between stuff for the podcast and this, that, and the other, I just didn't have time. And it's the kind of film where... You don't want to have to like pause it, start it again, pause it. I just want to sit through it and just enjoy it. So mm -hmm. we were coming up on the podcast. I picked the night, made sure you know family, friends, everything was was not going to happen, and and just uh, enjoyed it. And I and I let Bob watch it. He's like, I told you it was beautiful. Like, yeah, it was. <laughs> I know you watch this thing and it's like, oh, yeah. The light went on. Religious experience. Definitely. Well, guys, any last minute uh, thoughts, comments coming to a close here? I think, right. I think I covered about everything I can on the film. Um, just other than I love it, I recommend it. If any listeners out there have not seen it, you're in for a treat. Go get the Criterion Blu-ray. And that is the George Powell version. Yes. Okay. Yes, sir. And if you Hyperion. haven't seen the Cruise, the Tom Cruise version, do yourself a favor, go and watch it, turn it off like five minutes before the ending, <laughs> and you'll enjoy it. And Criterion, if you're listening, we enjoy your your many products. We do. And, and uh, yeah, if you are interested in any endorsements, we're there for you. <laughs> You know, not to take away from like Scream Factory, they do stuff. 
Uh, oh yeah. Hero. Uh, there, there's some good companies out there that put some there's, good supplemental stuff together. Yeah, lots of good companies. But Criterion is the uh, Criterion of uh, <laughs> the genre. They're Criterion for a reason. That's right. All right, guys. Well, it has come to that point in the series, and and uh, we're going to do our censor sweep. I told Bob and Karen what I was going to do the censor sweep on, and they, <laughs> Karen was amazed. Uh, this is a book put out by the good folks at Creature Features down in Burbank. And um, Jeff Bond, who did the um, motion picture, Star Trek the motion picture book, Karen and I recently got. So uh, good. Yeah. That, well, Je- Jeff Bond also did a book, which I read, which is amazing, called The Music of James Bond. Hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. He covers, like, hey. the soundtracks from each of the films. And, yeah, amazing book. This dude's prolific. Yeah. No He's kidding. good. I'm going to have to check He's that good. out, Bob, because I do love uh, the music from the Bond films. Uh, how iconic. Jeff Bond, James Bond. That's right. But I digress. So, yeah. Anyway, this is the fantasy worlds of Irwin Allen. Um, it, it has since sold out. And, um, you know, it retailed for like 75 or 80 bucks. 80 bucks, sorry. Uh, this thing is huge, though. Uh, freaking huge. Freaking and how huge. did you get it? <laughs> I, uh, I have friends. Really? Friends that, that take care of me and look after me. Um, actually, my wife. Uh, this is an early anniversary gift from my beloved, so... I am a I am a fortunate man in many ways. So, sir. Yes. What inspired you okay. to get this book? Because you told us something before the podcast, which is yeah. why I was amazed that you bought this book. So, please. I was, explain. in fact, and I love using this word. I was flabbergasted. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it takes a lot for me after close to thirty years of friendship with Karen think over 30 years to flabbergast or or give her pause so uh we're talking about the censor sweep I says I got this one I got this beautiful book fantasy worlds of Irwin Allen and I have never seen uh voyage to the bottom of the sea and Karen was like why would you get this Irwin Allen book well well I'm I'm gonna assume though that you've seen Lost in Space. I, I have huge, huge, and if you guys can't see the, I'll, I'll send Karen pictures of, of the book, front and back cover. When I was a little kid, five years old in kindergarten, Mother Caicos gets a call from Miss Payne, who was my uh, kindergarten teacher. And Miss Payne said, Miss Caicos, come, Larry, he's, he's running around with this coat. And I would get hand-me-downs from my cousins. And the sleeves on the coat, the coat was large for me. And I'd run around waving my arms going, danger, danger, Will Rock. <laughs> and running up on the other kids. And they're like, what the hell are you doing, Larry? So uh, she had to come in and explain uh, you know, I, I had one of those fat B9 robots from, from back in the day. I oh, yeah, Remco. Grandfather to, yeah, right? Uh, do you still have yours, Bob? <sighs> yeah, but here we go to another story. When I went to my <laughs> first 
you know, toy show, uh, Tony Del Grosso took me to it. And there was one of those Remco Lost in Space robots there. And it was going for like three, four hundred bucks or something. I go, I've got that. It's in my mom's basement. I have it. I'm, I've got it. So the next time I went and visited my mom, I went down and looked. It was gone. Oh. Uh, mom, where, where's all the, because it was gone. All my Major Matt Mason stuff was all gone. She gave it to some kid in the neighborhood. Oh. Like, oh. So that's why old stuff is valuable, because moms gave it away, burned it, <laughs> destroyed it, whatever. <sighs> a, a good friend of mine getting off the subject had a um, Mego Star Trek Enterprise bridge mm. with Captain Kirk and the Gorn. He had all the aliens. And his mother had decided that he was too old to play with toys and while he was at school threw everything away. Oh. And we were going to go dig in the trash to, to fetch it out because I'm like, shit, I'm not too old to play with that stuff. But the, the trash had already been picked up. Oh, so. man. Anyway, um, not only was I a fan of Lost in Space, but Land of the Giants. Oh, that was my next question. If you Time weren't tunnel. a voyage to the bottom of the sea, you had to be a Land of the Giants fan. Yes. Time yeah. tunnel? Okay. He also had a hand in the Towering Inferno, Biden mm-hmm. Adventure. Um, there was a lot of stuff that this man was involved in. And... Um, you know, this I haven't had a chance to go through the whole book, but at one point uh, they're talking about the Nielsen ratings for um, the different shows, and it tells you the name of the episode, what the rating was in the Nielsen's. Oh, my um, gosh. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, comic books that they did with regards to Time Tunnel. And, you know, you guys, I'll try to get the pictures on the uh, Blogspot page, but it was in Japan. And there was all this, like, Japanese artwork, and this thing is just gold to me. Um, Beautiful, beautiful pictures of, you know, Lost in Space. There's a forward by Bill uh, Mumi, um, and a picture of him on the set with the Netflix version of uh, Will Robinson, so this thing, it, it's just, if you ever, guys get a chance to, to get a hold of it, it, like I said, it's since sold out. You never know. Creature Features may put out a second printing. Um, you might be able to get a hold of it then. But I, I highly, highly recommend this. If, you, if you're a fan of any of the shows or the movies, uh, this is the book for you, most certainly. Especially... If you're a fan of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. (laughs) Now, I I will say, as I said in the beginning of the show, I I love my colleagues. Uh, Sometimes we differ on opinions of films and TV shows. But after watching Sven Gulli last night on MeTV, I thought, you know, I'm going to mention this book to them. I better go ahead and uh, start recording Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. So I'm going to start catching up on those episodes. Well, you know, we were we were out in the back uh, monster garage, the Planet Eight headquarters, watching Mad Monster Party last night. What was on Sven Gulli? It was, uh, you know, I I t voted. We were out visiting uh, Jazz's friends. Jazz got a new uh, her early anniversary gift was the Nintendo Switch. Hmm. So I was playing Mario Party, so I had to record uh, Sven Gulli 
Uh, so I can't tell you the name of the film. I, oh, I, I thought maybe it was Irwin Allen related since it, it spurred you to bring the book up. No, no, it, it's not. I, God, you know, I couldn't even tell you. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to text you guys later what it was. <laughs> no, but well, the thing is, is I know after Sven, it's Star Trek Lost in Space, you know, because he does that sci-fi block. There was uh, a connection in there somewhere. Yeah. yeah, I was waiting for that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, so yeah, I'm they show check. they show uh, Lost in Space and Time to and Voice to the Bottom of the Sea. They well, do. I, I knew. Right. I, so. My thoughts of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea always go back to a hallucinogenic experience I had. <laughs> so, I, no, I was I was young and uh, uh, young and I carefree. Joint on the counter. I had some minor surgery, and uh, I was laying on the couch, and the doctor had given me some sort of pain pills. I don't know. My mother was giving them to me. Anyway, Voyage of the Bottom of the Sea was on, and uh, these drugs did some strange things to me. And uh, I was watching Voyage of the Bottom of the Sea, and it did something. It distorted my sense of time. So I'm laying there watching it, and I'm going, oh, my God, this episode's been on for, like, three hours. And I started freaking out, and I, Mom, Mom, I called. I'm like, Mom, this show has been on, like, three hours. And she's like, it's been on, like, 15 minutes. <laughs> I'm going, I don't, this is, it's going too long. I just started tripping out, and they had to call the doctor, and they said, oh, no, and the dosage was wrong and anyway it was a long day let me tell you the, be the beauty of the beauty of Erwin Allen is they'd have an alien on Lost in Space and then they'd paint it green push it under the water and it would be on next week's Voyage <laughs> to the Bottom of the Sea I'm, I'm going to keep an eye out for that Bob yeah no, you'll, see a lot, you'll see a lot of Lost in Space aliens on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea uh, so was, Voyage to the Bottom like, of the Sea started out sort of like a an undersea spy show. Yeah. And then as it went on, then it started introducing aliens and creatures and underwater Leprechauns. monsters. And yeah. <laughs> and it got more and more bizarre, but it did introduce something that I really wish I had. And that was a flying sub. Oh yeah. The flying oh, sub is amazing. This flying sub, Bob? No, just kidding. What? You, you guys can't see Bob's face, but his eye just kind of went, huh? Uh huh? <laughs> Yeah, you can always tell the difference between, like, the first season of Lost in Space and all the other seasons, because oh, the yeah. first season really is more, like, kind of, like, science fiction, military, spy stuff, and then the other seasons are all just totally bonkers, and then it's it's kind of like Larry's uh, Star Trek reuse theory, you know, where, like, oh, they're shooting a you know, a Nazi show down the street or you're shooting a cowboy show and then that what shows up on Star Trek is like cowboys or whatever because it would be like, yeah, Lost in Space, there'd be like a leprechaun or a caveman or whatever. It's like, oh, somebody must have been shooting a caveman on another set. But the, so. the, third, the third season of Lost in Space, very much like the third season of Batman, you had the black infinite backgrounds. So when they did sets, they would just have like a few set pieces and the background would just be black. And that would represent a library or a spaceship or whatever, you know. It wasn't, they never did full sets in those seasons. You know, and, and I guess I haven't watched episodes of Lost in Space in years, but I remember as a kid, some of those uh, sets would scare me, you know, depending on the monsters or the creatures or whatever. It was, um, 
and you know the book kind of talks about how th- this guy was like really really ingenious and in how he would put these projects together and and you know make them work well even in the first season of lost in space which was in black and white he mm-hmm. shot all the effects in color mm. because he knew that you know second season would be in color he could reuse all right. those effects right uh, as long as the they were in color dude. you know smart yeah yeah well, my friends, uh, that draws us to a close. You guys take care of yourselves. Be safe. Until we meet again. On that note, this will conclude this transmission from Planet 8. We would like to thank all of our intergalactic audience for listening. Be sure to head on over to our website at www.planet8podcast.com where you can get more information on this episode's topic. For more conversation, find us on Twitter at Planet8Cast. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash planet8podcast. We want to thank you guys for tuning in each and every episode. We look forward to your input and opinions. Until next time, this is Planet8 signing off. End transmission. By George, he's got it. It is the end. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. Out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Starting now, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night, so we did the best next thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch, and if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian, it's Halloween. <laughs>